I'm ready. You guys ready? Let's begin. All right, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and it's my privilege to speak, preach the week before Q&A Sunday. As Ryan mentioned, next week is Q&A Sunday. It'll be a little bit different. We'll have the three chairs up here. Me and Jeff will be up here with Ryan. We've been really looking forward to that, and uh, it'll be hopefully a whole lot more interactive, but also still helpful and edifying and informative. And Ryan and I are going to do our best to make sure that Jeff doesn't hog all the Hebrew vocabulary questions so we get those all spread around. It's so great that I can make fun of you. It's wonderful. Okay. This is our fifth and final week in Hebrews 11. Ryan has done a good job of taking us the last four weeks through the individual stories that we find in chapter 11. And now, this week, we're going to transition out of those particulars and into the, uh, back into the letter as a whole. And uh, how do we get from chapter 10 to chapter 12? How does 11 fit in between there? How do we get from draw near to God in chapter 10 to God is going to discipline you and train you in chapter 12 and it's going to hurt? How do we bridge that gap? And what I want you to learn and embrace and worship through this morning is this, that God is at work. He is keeping his promises. He is making you more like Jesus And that's going to involve some amount of suffering, but it's for your good and ultimately for your joy in Christ. Hebrews fits the pattern of many of the New Testament letters where you start off with a section of teaching who Jesus is, what he's done, his superiority in the case of Hebrews, and uh, gospel content before transitioning into a time of Application and response. How do we live in light of what we've learned? Hebrews has some warnings that are scattered through, warnings against unbelief. Uh, But it was in chapter 10 that we made that turn. And everything after chapter 10 is uh, living in response to what we've seen. There's the right way to respond, which is drawing near to God and drawing near to each other. And there's the wrong way to respond, which is to return to sin and to walk away from it. And chapter 10 closes with a call to endurance. You have need of patient endurance. If you want to receive the reward that's coming, you have need of endurance. And so he gives us all of chapter 11, to give us examples of how it's always been that way. We've always had to wait for God to fulfill his promises. Life is hard while we wait, and there is suffering, because that's part of the package. But we know that he is good, and he is faithful, and he is true, because he always has been. And that's what we've seen in chapter 11. Before we dive into our text this morning, which will start in verse 32 of chapter 11, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this time that we have to share uh, these moments in your word. Thank you that you have provided your word to us so that we can know what it is that you want us to know about the lives that we live here. Thank you that you have showed us uh, the nature and depth of our sin and showed us the, the wonder and beauty of Jesus, how he died on the cross for our sins so that we can come to him draw near to him, and live life out of what he has done for us. Lord, I pray that this message this morning would be useful to your people, not just today, this afternoon, and this week, but this message about faithful endurance through suffering will be lodged in the hearts of your people so that in the hour of need, that it will be, be there and that you can bring it to mind 
when the time is right, whether that be this week or next year or at the close of our lives. It's in your great name we pray, and it is you that we long to see. Amen. All right, chapter 11, verse 32. We're going to stop and start our way through the passage, and uh, let's begin. What more shall I say? After all this stuff in chapter 11 about all these other people, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now, up to this point, Hebrews 11 has been a series of greater and greater victories. We started with small obedience, Abel and Enoch. It affected one person. And then we got a little bit bigger on the family scale. We had Noah and, and the patriarchs through Joseph and how faith was played out on the family level. And eventually we got to the national level where there's kings and, uh, and the whole nation of Israel. And you could get the idea that the life of faith is just a never-ending escalator of success and victory. But we've already seen in Hebrews thus far, that the old system, as good as it was, was completely inadequate because it did not solve the problem of sin. That required divine intervention in the form of Jesus. So for all the triumphs of faith, all the triumphs of faith that we've seen in chapter 11, they were more the exception than the rule. You will also notice the chapter doesn't end in verse 35. The writer continues, some were tortured. Now, that seems like really, really bad writing. There's not even a hint of transition here, not even a break. We're going up, 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 and up, and then some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. It's a picture of complete marginalization and isolation from acceptable society. It's almost like the author doesn't realize that all this bad stuff doesn't sit very nicely next to all the victories that we've seen thus far. The guy getting sawn in two was not on the poster of the Hall of Faith in my Sunday school classroom. So, The first take-home point right up front is that sometimes God delivers us by faith into a great victory here. And other times, God delivers us by faith into a trial where there is only one way out. And the victory of faith is simply being faithful and enduring to the end. Suffering well, being faithful unto death. 39. And all. All these, not just those folks that got it bad at the end, but all of them, all the way through, going back to Abel, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That caught me by surprise in my preparation because we are accustomed to thinking that God does keep his promises. He promised uh, a son to Abraham, and Abraham had a son. He promised land to his people, and there was land promise fulfilled. But 
here God is saying that doesn't even come close to what I have in mind for the fulfillment of my promises. Look back across in verse 13 through 16 of chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Ryan did a good job a few weeks ago when we covered this, telling us that true faith requires waiting. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The promise of God from the very beginning of time has been about a people and a place. After sin fractured the creative order, God gave promises. I'm going to accomplish a reconciliation, a restoration. Sin will be done away with. I will gather my people back to me in one place. And we only see the very beginnings of that in the Old Testament with the people of Israel and the promised land. In fact, there was so much that was left undone that God says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Why not? Why did God not yet follow through on those promises? Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God had something even better in mind. And the whole book of Hebrews has been screaming to us that something better, that's Jesus. He is the one who's actually able to solve our sin problem. By his work, our faith, by his work, our sin can be forgiven through faith. He is the better man, the greater than angels, emissary from God. He's the better conqueror, the better deliverer, better priest, better sacrifice, served in a better temple, operated on better promises, and is gathering a better people. The Old Testament saints had faith, but they were not a complete people, not Without us, is what this is saying. God's work of gathering a people back to himself was not going to be finished until he had gathered in his whole church. No longer were the people of God going to be confined to one ethnicity, speaking one language in one tiny nation. Now we are the global church. People of all languages across the whole world through all time. God gets much more glory for reconciling Everybody, the whole race, not every single person, but the whole people back to himself than he ever could just working through one people, Israel. But, and this is important, that work is not yet finished. He is still gathering his people and preparing his place. And God's promises are still going to be fulfilled in a yet greater way. Even the church age is only a partial fulfillment. There are more people to be saved and God has more work to accomplish in us and through us. The work isn't done, but the work can be painfully difficult. And as we move forward out of chapter 11, the author wants us to know that we're going to need endurance. And he doesn't just want us to take his word for it. He 
See what he says next, chapter 12, verse 1, continuing. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, our author is calling as witnesses all those folks in chapter 11 so that they can testify and speak and witness to what they have seen and heard. They lived their lives of faith, and what do they tell us? You have to wait. The promises aren't going to be fulfilled yet. You need endurance, but he is faithful, so you can be faithful, and it's worth it. I know a lot of you have probably heard that uh, you'll read, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and you've been taught that that means that um, all these Old Testament saints have finished their race, and they've retired from the field, and they've taken their seats up in the stands, and now they're watching as spectators, witnesses, spectators, and they are watching us as we carry on the work of God, and they're, you know, cheering us on, yay, raw, and um, I don't think that's what he means by witnesses. It's, um, they're speaking, they are testifying to us. That's what it means by witnessing, that we don't have to worry about disappointing Moses or making Abel sad or uh, getting Samson angry with us. That would be bad, right? We don't have to worry about that. He is telling us that they are speaking to us, that they have something to say. Back in chapter 11, verse 4, where we started, Abel, even though he died, he still speaks. After Cain murdered his brother Abel, God goes to Cain and says, Hey, your brother's blood, it's crying out to me from the ground. What have you done? So what is it that the blood of Abel says? What is the blood of Abel crying out? What does it say to us? We don't have that explicitly in the scripture, but it's not too hard to imagine. If it were me, I'd be saying something like, Hey, I just got killed here. I was living a life of faith. I offered my sacrifice and offerings to you. I am counting on you to reconcile us and destroy the serpent and bring us back into the garden. And now I'm dead. How long is it going to take for you to fulfill your promises? Nobody else has gotten here to heaven yet. And there's only so much wee bowling that I can do with Gabriel and the Holy Spirit. How long is this going to take? Maybe that's not what Abel says, but it's along those lines. How long is this going to take? When are the promises going to be fulfilled? This is where I want to talk to you guys about clarity of expectations. That was my title for this message. That might not be a phrase that you're familiar with, but it's one that we use in our house, Aaron and I, and now Bree, quite a bit. We want clear expectations. As people, we benefit from knowing what's coming next. That's one reason why there's so much prophecy in this book is because God knows that it's helpful for us to know what's coming so that we can be prepared. Forewarned is forearmed. God does not want us to be taken by surprise in this area. He wants us to know that we need to wait patiently. Let me give you a couple examples to help you understand quite clearly what I'm talking about. Aaron and I are planners and schedulers by nature, uh, sometimes even on the outer edge of normalcy, perhaps. When things go wrong the way we don't expect, the way one of us doesn't expect, that's a problem. Carl, tomorrow, is teaching me to shoot. I've never shot a gun before, and it sounds interesting, and so he's going to teach me. I've been learning my four rules of gun safety. The gun is always loaded, okay? I don't know when. We're doing that. Monday is the day. I don't know when. I don't know where. I don't know how long it's going to take. 
I don't know what I'm supposed to wear. It makes me really twitchy not knowing what to expect. But I know Carl. That's how Carl rolls. It's good enough just to get a day. Carl's going to spend time with me on Monday. That's great. We can figure it out later. When Aaron and I have free time, that can be the worst. When we go on vacation, that is one of the most dangerous times for us because we can both start assuming the way things are going to go and wrong assumptions lead to wrong expectations and that leads to frustration. It can be really, really bad. The first time we traveled together, it was our honeymoon. We went on a cruise and... um, We didn't know what we were getting into. She assumed that we were going to get up at dawn, go to breakfast, and execute the plan. And I assumed I was going to wake up at 9 and then figure out a plan. And it was not... We were irritating each other in in a big way. But it was our honeymoon, so we were being all forgiving and and lovey, and it it wasn't a problem. It wasn't until our next cruise, four years later, when she was pregnant, that I was informed just how infuriating I had been last time. (laughs) And this time. So we didn't have right expectations. It's her own fault. I was so exhausted. (laughs) It's our honeymoon. What would you expect? It's all right. Wrong expectations leads to unmet expectations, resentment, and frustration. Now, I know some of you are just surprise me, spontaneous kind of people, but when it's a bad surprise, nobody wants a bad surprise, right? Nobody. And God does not want us to be surprised. Here's a more serious example from this book, Jesus' Disciples. First century Judaism, people were waiting for Messiah. Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Romans, the oppressors, get them out, and an eternal kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness was going to be established. And that is right. The Messiah will establish an eternal kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness, but not then. And the disciples just could not grasp that the next step of redemptive history involved Messiah being betrayed. And being killed by the Romans, dying on a cross. And even after he told them, this is what's going to happen, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, when we get there, they're going to take me and kill me. And they were all, okay, so, so now? Now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No, no, not now. He tried to set their expectations correctly. And um, it works that way for us, too. That we hear it from Paul. And uh, from the book of Acts, here here in Hebrews, and from James and Peter and Jude and John, every writer who put pen to paper and wrote New Testament scripture tells us that we are going to have suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Consider it all joys when you meet trials of various kinds, but do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. The New Testament is really good at telling us what to expect, clarifying our expectations, but we can be really, really lousy at getting the message. Why is it so hard for us to hear and understand and remember for 20 minutes that this is the way God has told us it's going to be? There's a few reasons I'd like us to consider. First off, we just don't want it to be true. We don't want it to be that way. We want God to accomplish his purpose of rescuing us and making us more like Jesus some other way. Even Jesus, when he was in the garden, was praying, Lord, if there be any other way, let's do that instead. 
Similarly, we think that it ought not be this way, that if there's any justice in the universe, that we should get good for doing good. We respond in faith to the gospel. We put our trust in Jesus, and that's just what God wants us to do. So we think God should bless us and reward us for having done that and not send us a whole bunch of suffering. And in a sense, that is true. There is great reward in following Jesus. We just get the timing mixed up. There's no disputing the rewards that are coming for Christ's people. But we think that God should deliver the promises now, and he's telling us, no, 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 let me handle this. I can do the whole running of the universe thing better than you can. Trust me, I am sovereign, I am good, I am for you, I am doing a work in you. It's going to be difficult, but trust me, you'll need patient endurance to reach the fulfillment. There are also other, more uh, perhaps sinister reasons why we might have a hard time remembering this. We have an enemy that wants us to fail and Uh, He delights in blinding us to God's work, and he wants to tamper with our expectations so that we expect God to do things that he's not going to do. And then when God doesn't do those things that he never told us he was going to do, we get all angry and upset, and our souls get endangered and perplexed that why isn't God doing this stuff? Well, he never promised to. So one of the enemy's great tools is deception and We live in this time and place, Hamilton County, 2011, where uh, it's just in the air that we breathe. We want to strive to avoid suffering, and everything is geared around comfort and security. That's where we live. And we can be lulled into forgetting what we know to be true from what he's told us. Lastly, um, sometimes we just get confused about what God's purposes really are and what he's actually promised. God is not out to make us comfortable and happy and meet our fleshly desires. God is after our holiness. James MacDonald says that God's love for us is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. He wants what is best for us. He wants us to be free from sin, free from that slavery, free to worship him and love him and serve him. And we forget that's what he is up to. We expect him to act a certain way for a certain reason, helping our lives to go more smoothly. And then when he doesn't do that, That can be a real problem. You can see how we could be setting ourselves up for relational failure with God if we're expecting him to do things that he's not promised to do. Listen, some of you may well be expecting God to do things that he has not promised to do or that he's not going to do yet. Let's take a couple, an easy example, outside of our walls before we turn our attention inwards. Uh, There's a line of thought out there, prosperity theology, uh, that the line of thinking is that you look at the Bible and there's all these prophecies about health and wealth and blessing and peace. And some people teach that should be happening now. That really isn't going to be happening until heaven. But some people say that if you just have enough faith and you do the right things and you give in the right generous way, that the wealth and health and all those wonderful things will be yours now. And that's in spite of 4,000 years of the history of God's people showing us that we are usually marginalized and oppressed and downtrodden, not in spite of our lack of faith, but because we have faith. Even if you don't take it as far as that, you can still be expecting God to just make your life easier, more smooth, less 
bumpy, and that's not really what God has promised at all. Jesus did not come to make our suburban lives more blissful. He came to save our souls. And although we can know that in our heads, sometimes it doesn't always flow out in the way we act. There have been some of you that have gone to Aaron and said, I just know, and so good that we know that God is going to heal you completely. And when we hear that, we think, we don't know that. She could get worse and die next year. She could have 50 more miserable years. She could die in a wreck on the way home. Any of us could. Or God could heal her completely. That's what we're praying for, but we don't know that that's what's going to happen. So we don't get angry with God when she continues to um, not be fully healthy, although she is improving, praise God. An example closer to home, perhaps. Uh, the New Testament often uses marriage as a metaphor to help us understand the relationship we have with God. Uh, so we can look at marriage and see this. Single people, married people, listen, do not expect your spouse to meet needs that only God can meet. Your spouse is not meant to do that. Austin and Erica engaged last week. All right. Round of applause for Austin and Erica. Where's Erica? There you are. Erica, Austin, do not expect each other to fulfill all your needs. God did not give you each other to meet all your relational, physical, and existential needs. Don't put that burden on each other. That's not why God did marriage. That's not why he's put you together. But he does have a purpose for marriage. And if you know what that purpose is, you're much more likely to have a wonderful marriage. God's ultimate purpose is to make you more like Christ, and having to live with another sinner is a great way to learn patience and forbearance. And, and you'll learn. You'll learn. It's not good that man is alone. It's wonderful. But don't expect her to complete you, right? The way we grow through marriage is you, uh, you love your wife like Christ loved the church. You give yourself for her. You sacrifice. You put her needs first. You care for her. You model Christ in her life. And God will complete his work in us as we do that for our spouse using our marriages. Here's a potentially more sensitive one. Uh, more even than that, do we have right expectations about church growth? Has God promised to bring Prairie View heaps and heaps of new people? Well, Jesus said that he will build his church, and it's true that one person sows and another person waters, and God gives the growth, but does that guarantee that this local church is going to hit a cycle of explosive growth? Some folks might say, I've heard it said, yes, and that my lack of faith that's going to happen is uh, such an impediment that it would prevent God from doing that, as though my skepticism could thwart the designs of the Almighty. Now, certainly, God is capable of doing that. Amen? God is capable of using these people to reach our community and building up this congregation. Um, but that's not guaranteed, necessarily, even if even if we are diligent in our labors and faithful to the preaching of the gospel and we love each other and we love the community, and if we sit tight at 85 and never crack 100 again, will we have failed in our purpose? Will God have failed in his promises? 
it's certainly true that the general pattern of Scripture is that a healthy church is a growing church, but that doesn't guarantee that that's going to happen here. Will that happen here? Maybe. I don't know. But I'm not going to lose faith if we sit tight at 85 while City of God Church explodes and flourishes. Praise God, we will do what we can. I will do my part. I will serve wherever they let me serve. But uh, I'm not going to let it get to me if I'm not going to hold God accountable if we're doing our part and he helps us grow in depth and reach our neighbors and co-workers and they go to some other church. That's, that would be fine with me, I guess. Now, before we continue in the text, I want to show you right here from Hebrews why suffering, why suffering is one of God's best tools. Why does it work? Why couldn't God get the same results through abundant blessing or world peace or miracles and signs, big stuff like that? Just about every book in the Bible says something about this topic, but just consider Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. And to show you where we're going, we're going to be using that as our template. In chapter 12, God uses suffering as a tool of training and discipleship. The word that we're going to see coming up in chapter 12 is discipline. We think discipline and we think punishment. Okay, stop that. That's not what the word means. Discipline means training. God uses uh, corrective discipline to chisel away the parts of our soul that still love sin and to free us from that grasp. And he uses formative discipline to build and establish in us the likeness of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. That is part of following the way. That'll be next time we come back to Hebrews. We see in chapter 11 that suffering is a path to testimony. This is the trial that God has put before me. This is how he's working. He's doing it for a reason. He's proving himself faithful. And I can speak to others about what God is doing and teach them the truth about God. And then back in chapter 10, we saw that supporting and comforting and encouraging each other in the midst of our own suffering is a way that God uses to strengthen and unify and knit together his body, the church. That is part of sharing the life. I am much closer to my brothers on the elder team for us having to lean on each other through challenging moments. I have been encouraged in my faith by watching Aaron suffer well, and many of you have told her the same thing. Now, uh, consider these last two years that Erin has been sick. She's been so sick that she needs mobility assistance, you know, a cane or at times even a wheelchair. It is an obvious indicator to everybody that there is a degree of suffering that's happening there. And so strangers will come up to her at Speedway or in the mall or wherever and say, What's wrong? What's wrong? Why does a young lady like you need to be in a wheelchair or need to use a cane? And that sickness, although we hate it, has given her an opportunity to speak. I have lupus. It's weakened my body. It's hard, but God has blessed me with a church family that has shown me the love of Christ. And he has sustained me, giving me the strength I need exactly when I need it. And he is using this to train me in patience and compassion. It's an easy opportunity for her to start that conversation. And it gives her credibility 
to talk about God. Nobody's going to take me very seriously when I talk about how God is great and God sustains me in the midst of all my trials. But when she says that, it means something. It was when she was at her worst six to eight months ago. That was her favorite time to say that, you know, since I have learned that I can lean on him, I am closer to God now than I ever would have been healthy. The love that I have for him has become deeper and sweeter because he has shown himself to be faithful and good in a way that I never would have seen if I was healthy. Now, as she has improved, there's always the temptation to slide back into our old pattern of, how are you? Fine. You fine. You're fine. Good. Good. Fine. We're all fine. Good. When we, when we pretend that we're fine and we are not, then we are robbing each other and ourselves of the opportunity to speak about what God is doing and how he is providing his grace in our lives. So if God is using suffering to accomplish his purposes, and if we must patiently endure this time of waiting, and if all our ancestors in the faith are telling us that he's faithful and it's worth it, then how do we respond? What are we to do with this? Continuing now in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, just like they did, let us also do four things we're going to see here, starting with lay aside every weight, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. These are two different categories. The second one is clear. Sin. Sin is not going to help you walk the Christian life, okay? We've got to get rid of sin. Show no mercy. Be killing sin or your sin will be killing you. Verse 4 talks about your struggle against sin. And that's part of God's work in us. But uh, that's distinct from laying aside every weight. This is the stuff that is not in itself sinful, but neutral or maybe even a good thing that can become a hindrance or a distraction weights burdens that slow us down things like your job your hobbies the cults facebook your money those are all not bad things but if they get in the way if they become too important to you they can become a distraction that needs to be forsaken for the sake of your walk with Christ it could even be good things time with family your kids um education service at church it can get in the way if it's not what you're called to do for many years i was in a wonderful independent bible study Bible Study Fellowship, BSF. I would recommend it to anybody that wants to know what does the book say. It was great. But when Steve Mazingo tapped me on the shoulder for eldership, Aaron and I looked at the schedule and we looked at the demands of eldering and realized BSF, as good as it is, it's not going to be helpful. It's not going to work. And though I miss it, as good as it was, it continues to be that right decision. I need to run the race that is set before me. Continue, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run is the word for long distance running, not sprinting, not shuffling, running the long race, running with endurance. Specifically, you are to run the race set before you, not your neighbor's race, not the race that you wish you had. You run your race. If you have kids, you're running the parenting race. If you're married, you're running the spouse race. Whatever your vocation is, whether that's employment or looking for work or being a caregiver or getting an education, 
that is part of your race. There is a small group and a ministry team here at this church that needs you in their race. Run the race that is set before you. Finally, the most important of the four, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We have all these examples of faith in chapter 11, and then in a category by himself, we have Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Focus on him, turning away from all others. Focus on him. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Founder means pioneer. He went first. All follow him. He was the first to have faith and act in faith, and he his, his work, his life and death are the basis of our faith, and he is the first one to go. He is the one who gives us our faith. He is the beginning of our faith, and he is the perfecter. He finishes our faith. He completes our faith. He's making us perfect here and now, and his work has secured that job's completion. He is the beginning, and he is the end. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, how did he run his race? How was he able to patiently endure and to drink the full cup of the Father's wrath? Because he had right expectations. He had before him the race. Go to the cross. That suffering, that agony, the shame, death. And on the other hand, he had the joy set before him. The Resurrection, the accomplishing of the purpose that he came to do, the reconciling of people back to God, the joy of fulfilling his work. And because he knew what his suffering was going to accomplish, because he had clear expectations of what lay beyond, he did it. And it is finished. So now he is seated. His completed work gives us the hope and strength to be faithful in our work while we wait for God to finish working in us and through us. Now, this is the last question I want us to consider. Why bother? If it's going to be so hard, if it's going to be so difficult, why bother? Why would I consider following Jesus if what you're telling me, Joshua, is that it's going to be really, really unpleasant? Is it worth it? And some folks would say, you know, no. I tried that Jesus thing. It didn't really work out for me. I really want to go back to the way I was. I want to do my own thing. I don't want God telling me what to do. It's not worth it. But there's other folks, folks that we're told about here, that tell us, yes, yes, it's worth it. Not just it is worth it. He is worth it. The reasons have been in here, and we've read through them, but I'm going to Put them all together in one place so that I can set your expectations rightly. You may think that I've been trying to 
um, suppress your expectations by telling you how awful this life is going to be. And yeah, I want you to be clear about what's coming for, for Christians in this life. But I now want to raise your expectations higher than could ever be fulfilled in this life about the fulfillment of God's promises. We're going to start back in 1034 and rip through about 50 verses here, pointing out every one that talks about our reward, our inheritance, the promises that God is fulfilling with the people of God going to be in the land of God. Starting in 1034, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 35, there is a great reward. In verse 36, you may receive what is promised. Verse 37, the coming one will come. Verse 6 of chapter 11, it is possible to please him to obtain the pleasure of God our master. Verse 16, there is a city that God has prepared for us, and he is not ashamed to be our God. Verse 25, sin provides fleeting pleasure, but we have eternal joy in Christ our Savior. Verse 26 and 27, Moses, when he was looking to the reward, he saw him who is invisible. He saw Jesus when he looked to the reward. Verse 35, there is a resurrection that is, too, a better life. Verse 38, there is a coming world that will be worthy of the people of God. And if you think that's far-fetched, read the middle of Romans 8, because it's there, too. Verse 40, we will enjoy the oneness of the whole communion of saints, Old Testament and New Testament, together. 12, verse 2, there is joy that is set before us as we fulfill the purposes that God have for us. And then verse 4 and beyond that we'll be looking at in the future, there is all the benefits and rewards of godly training, peaceful fruit of righteousness, growing in holiness, increasing liberation from sin. And then in verse 14 of chapter 12, seeing the Lord. We've been waiting a long time to see that guy. That is going to be really good. That's just a partial list drawn from uh, 10, 11, and 12. At the end of 12, we get this. Uh, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, prepared for the the wedding feast of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that's us and those that have gone before us, and to Jesus. The greatest reward of all is that we get to be with Jesus. And be with his people in the place that he's prepared for us. The new heaven and the new earth. When with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Now different parts of that will resonate differently with each of you. And I have found that the part that is most exciting for me... Every time I seriously think about it, it it still gets me, is that there's going to be people from every language. I'm neither here nor there on foreign languages, but for some reason, I just don't care that there's going to be people from different time periods, different religious backgrounds, different ethnicities. What I like to think about is there's going to be people from every language with us when we get there. I I don't know why that's so exciting to me, but I'll get chills when I hear some brother or sister in Christ speak in poor English 
about the work that God is doing in the part of the world where their native tongue is spoken. I love to receive the monthly reports from the Ingrams in Tanzania doing Bible translation work, translating this book that we've had in English for 700 years into the Swahili languages. Every single tribe's got their own. They've never had the word of God read or written in their language. And every month we get to hear about how that's happening more and more. There's only going to be need for one language in heaven. But it is real exciting to me knowing that there will be brothers or sisters there from that part of Tanzania whom I will never be able to communicate with here in this life. But I will get to share the joy of of hearing uh, their testimony about what God did forever as we celebrate the Savior. Here's my last request for you this morning, a, a request. Figure out what it is that excites you about the reward, about the fulfillment of God's promises, and explore it. Find it in this book. Because when you have your expectations set rightly, and you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, you can patiently endure this time of waiting. I can put up with a whole lot of suffering and trials and tribulation when I keep in mind the joy that I'll have when I hear the Savior's praise from lips whose language I never shared in this life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we've shared this morning. I thank you for the time that we will share with each other and with all your servants through all eternity. I thank you that you have told us what to expect, that we know that there is going to be suffering in this life and that you will be with us. You will never forsake us. That if our God is for us, who can be against us? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, for you are with us. You have told us what is coming. We know that the end of all men is death. And thank you that you have gone through death and made that passage safe for us. Though it's unpleasant and painful and we fear the process of dying, I thank you that we do not need to fear death itself because we know that when we die and pass through the veil, we will go to be with you in your presence and our joy will be complete. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There's a peace that comes to 